to Romans chapter 8. And if you need a Bible to follow along, just uh, slip your hand up in the air and the guys will uh, see to it that you have a Bible so that you can follow along in our study. Romans chapter 8. One of the more cost-effective things that a young family can do, such as mine, recreationally, is to go hiking. And especially around here, you know, we're kind of tucked into the foothills of the Catskill Mountains, and there's some great places to explore and relax and uh, get dirty out there. And it's one of our favorite things to do. We, my, our kids, my wife and I, we love to do that. But a preferred path for us when we uh, choose to go out on such excursions is always a place that has some kind of a, a view or some place where you can uh, kind of sit and look out or a waterfall or, or, or something there that's more than just a path and some trees and some fresh air. You know, you always want a payoff. You know, it's kind of like a, a reward for the effort that you've exerted in your, in your hike. You want to be somewhere, you know, get to something that's worth uh, sitting for a while and having a snack. You know, we recently hiked up Mohonk, you know, on the other side of the river. And, you know, it was a great hike, three miles, and the kids all made it up there. And then we climbed up to the lookout tower there. And, and you know, they say that you can see into five states from up there. That it's just, the view is absolutely phenomenal. And you look and you can see into the Catskills and you feel like you're in another country. Just absolutely incredible to go up and into a place like that. And it just makes a hike like that worthwhile. Well, as we get into Romans chapter 8, and we hike there from chapter 1, we come to one of the most scenic settings in all of New Testament topography. Paul has taken us on a journey of Christianity, as he's laid out for us from the beginning of Romans and all the way up now through chapter 8, of what it is to be a Christian, to be called and, and, and linked to Jesus Christ. He started with us lost in our sins, and then he brought us to the place of salvation. And then he's explained for us what it means to be sanctified or made like Christ and built up in the ways of the Lord. And now, as we get into chapter 8, we reach the top. We come to the pinnacle. As, as Paul begins now in this chapter to enumerate for us, one by one, the blessings of believing. What is it that we are rewarded? What is it that we have? What's been given to us? The privileges that have been heaped upon us as we have been linked to and saved by Jesus Christ. And he begins right at the very beginning of the chapter there in chapter 8, verse 1, by telling us the first thing that we have, this glorious privilege that we have as Christians, is he tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, he begins by using this word, therefore. And whenever you see that word, you always know that he's connecting the previous thought to the present thought. That whenever he says, therefore, the verse that he's using is related to what comes before us. And what he has just said to us in chapter 7 is that because we are no longer under the law, 
Because we are linked to Christ and crucified with him on his cross, we are dead to the law and we are now joined to or married, linked with, one with, there's a union between us and Christ. And because of that union with Christ and our death to the law, the result of that is that now there is no longer condemnation in our path. That the penalty for sin has been completely paid. It's been completely absorbed. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And in 2 Corinthians it says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. The word condemnation, or to be condemned, means to be found or proven guilty of capital crimes, and thus you are accountable to pay the penalty, which when it, in terms of sin, the penalty of sin is death. But condemnation is no longer in the path of the believer. Now, you know, what does this mean? How is this possible? That, that, that we could be just completely free from condemnation. How could God do that? The scene was early in the morning. And Jesus arose. He had spent the night in the Mount of Olives. And he rose up early and he went into the temple. And some of his disciples were there gathered. And he was teaching them early in the morning. And if you can imagine the scene, it was quiet in the temple. It was prior to the time of day when people would be you know, coming in and offerings would be made. And it was just that early morning stillness and Jesus was there teaching. Very peaceful setting. And all of a sudden in the distance you could hear a ruckus, a struggle. There was something stirring, something happening outside. And the noise crescendoed, it grew as you could tell there was something happening and they were coming towards the temple. And you could hear the sound of grunts and deep angry voices and you can hear the whimper of a woman. And as they sat, beginning to wonder, what is this that's taking place in front of us? The the door, through the door, came a group of pharisaically robed men carrying a woman who was very partially clothed. And as Jesus was there with his disciples, the scene went from peaceful to somewhat shameful. And as this group, this this gang of madmen really bring in this woman, they throw her on the ground there in the temple right in front of Jesus, interrupting his study, disturbing the peace for sure. And they look at Jesus and they, with blazing eyes fixed upon him, say to him that this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. She was seen, there's proof in the mouth of two or three witnesses. The law, the word, the Bible says, the commandment of Moses is that she is to be stoned and put to death. What do you say? And thinking that they had Jesus trapped, They're thinking that they had checkmated this rabbi, this itinerant preacher. This woman with shamed face bowed toward the ground. Jesus stooped down. I'm sure he looked at the woman. Probably the first time anybody had ever looked this woman in the eye. And then he looked down and he began to write in the dirt with his finger. And one by one, this group of 
enraged and emboldened Pharisaic men rose to their feet and walked out. From the oldest to the youngest. We're not told what Jesus was writing. We're only told that as he did so, those men who were so sure that they had the Son of God trapped, that this woman certainly would be stoned, and that Jesus' reputation would be marred. His mercy would be tarnished. One by one, they walked out. And then Jesus, looking at the woman, I'm sure with a sparkle in his eye, a smile on his face, he said, Woman, where are those thine accusers? And she said, There's none, Lord. And then he said, Neither do I condemn thee. He said, Go thy way and sin no more. Well, wait a minute. How is this possible? Jesus couldn't remove her guilt. The fact that she had been taken, caught in the very act was known to all them that were present there and to all those that had brought her. He he certainly couldn't remove her guilt. And he couldn't pretend that the claim wasn't true. Certainly all of that was there. So how could Jesus look at this woman who was taken in this act, who in herself wasn't seeking to be free from the accusation, how could he justify her? What did he do? He removed her accusers. That one by one, the Son of God removed the accusers so that the case was broken. There no longer was two or more. There was not even one that would stand there and hold that stone and throw it. Hey, there was one man there that was worthy to throw that stone. For Jesus had said to them, let him that is without sin among you throw the first stone. There was only one person there that held that qualification. It was the man who was talking to her. And yet it wasn't a rock that he picked up off the ground. It was the woman. And he said, go thy way and sin no more. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not because our sin isn't a reality, but because he removed the accuser. The law. The code of commandments that was against us. The strength of sin was taken out of the way. It was nailed there to the cross with him. And to anyone who will believe in Jesus, who will put their faith and trust in him and believe for righteousness, to them there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus died for you and I. He separated us from the law and he absorbed the penalty for our sin and he made us one with himself. And so he can look at us and say, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But then he goes on, Paul, and he says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That there's no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. He's saying that this privilege... This proclamation of no condemnation belongs to those who have been crucified with Christ and those that are living for Him. And then he goes on to explain what this means in verses 2 through 4. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He holds up, Paul, for us, two laws. He says, on the one hand, there's the law of the Spirit of life, and on the other hand, there's the law of sin and death. One of those laws applies to those who have put their faith in Christ, the law of the Spirit of life. We've been given the Spirit of God to come and dwell within us, to live inside of us, to seal us and to make us clean and righteous, to declare our salvation to us and for us. On the other hand, the flesh to the flesh relates the law of sin and death. It's told to us plainly what that is in chapter 6, verse 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death. It's a very simple law. The wages of sin is death. That's the law of sin and death. If you sin, you will. That's right. It's very easy. The equation is quite simple. See, you and I, we are guilty. We have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, the penalty of death belongs to us. Now, it stands to reason if the penalty of sin is death, then the reward of righteousness is life. Right. Now, you and I are guilty of sin, therefore, we're sentenced to die. It's the law of sin and death. But Jesus, he was righteous. It says that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. There was no iniquity laid to his charge. He himself said, if I am guilty, then accuse me. Tell me what wrong I have done. And there was nothing that could be said against him, because he was righteous. And yet, what happened to Jesus? He died. He absorbed the penalty, the punishment for sin, but yet he didn't deserve it. So therefore, he absorbed the penalty for something he didn't do. So there's something left over. It's a get out of jail free card. It's a free righteousness and it's thrown up in the air. It's there for the taking. Jesus bought it. See, he was righteous. He fulfilled the righteousness of the law. That's what he says in verses 3 and 4. It says that the law couldn't save us because it was weak through our flesh. But God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus fulfilled the righteousness, and then he imparts that free gift to us. The penalty for our sin was paid by him, and therefore the righteousness that he obtained is imparted and given freely to us, to any who would take it. But then he says, who walk, and he throws this phrase in there the second time, now, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That there's this little earmark put on this thing to those who walk not after the flesh, but those that walk after the spirit. So what's the difference then? You said this twice now, Paul. What's the difference between those that walk after the flesh and those that walk after the spirit? Well, the word walk itself implies something. Walking implies a path. And if there's a path, then there, there's something happening. There's a movement. You're going in a certain direction, and you have an intended destination. If you're walking somewhere, there's a path, there's a, a direction, and there's a destination in this walk. And there's two paths mentioned. The path of the flesh, walking after the flesh, and the path of the spirit, walking after the spirit. Now, ironically, both paths promise the same thing. Those that walk after the flesh and those that walk after the spirit both think that they are going to inherit good in the latter end. 
Both think that they're building a better life for themselves. Both think that they're ultimately going to end up in glory. Both paths promise the same thing, but both paths can't deliver. So the path called the walk after the flesh that Paul is talking about here, the path is following the instincts of the natural course of life. Walking after your plans, walking after your ideas, walking in your ways and fulfilling your own desires. The path of the flesh has this sign over it as you enter, that this is your life and you can live it the way you want to. That's what it means to walk after the flesh. Now, on the other hand, what does it mean to walk after the Spirit? What does he mean when he says that there's no condemnation to those that walk in the Spirit? What does he mean when he says that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in them who walk in the Spirit? In John's Gospel, the 14th chapter, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said these words. Speaking to his disciples shortly before his departure, he said to them, I will pray to the Father. And he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. For he dwelleth with you, and he shall be, listen, in you. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, he dwells with you, Jesus said, and there's coming a day when he will be in you that the Spirit will live inside you. Then in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, shortly after Jesus was crucified and rose again, he said these words to his disciples. He said, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. He's now risen from the dead. The sacrifice has been offered and accepted. He's risen again. And as he's there gathered with them in his, you know, resurrected status, he says, peace to you. I'm sending you even as my father sent me. And he breathes on them and says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now listen, if Jesus breathes on you and says, receive ye the Spirit, what happens? You receive the Spirit. It was a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen in the 16th chapter when he said, he shall be in you. But then, after this, Jesus speaks again concerning the Spirit to his disciples. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just before he ascends to not come back again until the second coming, he says these words to them. He says, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is it that's being spoken of concerning, you know, in this thing of who is the Spirit? Well, First Peter chapter 1, verse 11 calls him the Spirit of Christ. That the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 says that because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 27, Paul speaking to the church at Colossae says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. 
the hope of glory. The riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit is none other than the Spirit of Jesus Christ himself. And it is clear, scripturally, as we look at the gospel and we look at the consensus of what the New Testament says about the Spirit, that as a believer, Christ desires to live inside his people. That that's his will. That as you come to him at the place of salvation, that when you meet him at the cross and turn from this old man, this fleshly path, and you give your life to Christ, it's at that point that he desires to move into you. That he desires by his spirit to make a home within your heart. A place where he can live. So the path of the spirit. We talk about the path of the flesh. The path of the spirit follows the leading and direction of the father. What did Jesus say? He said, I always do those things which please the father. That's what Jesus said. He would say to those that would question him. He would say, I can do nothing by myself but only that which the Father gives me to do, that which the Father enables me to do. That's the path of the Spirit, if we are so to be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. Rather than the fleshly path of following our plans, our ideas, our ways, and our desires, to walk after the Spirit means that we're now following His plans. We're walking after His ideas. We desire His ways. His desires drive us. Because we believe, we know that he sees from the end, or the end from the beginning, and so we're able to trust him as he would lead us. Well, how do I know if I'm walking after the flesh or after the spirit? Because it seems kind of important that, to, that we make that distinction as it does here in, 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 in these things. How do I know if I'm walking after the flesh or after the spirit? What's the evidence in my life? Well, he gives the answer to that in verses 5 through 13. Read with me verse 5. He says, This is very simple. This is how you know. He says, for they that are after the flesh, that means walking in the path of the flesh, do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Very simple, isn't it? Let me read it to you in the Amplified Bible. It should come up on the screen. Verse 5 in the Amplified Bible reads it this way. He says, for those who are according to the flesh and are controlled by its unholy desires, set their minds on and pursue those things which gratify the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, and are controlled by the desires of the Spirit, set their minds on and seek those things which gratify the Spirit. That on the one hand, you're following after and fulfilling the desires of the flesh, And on the other hand, you're following after and seeking to fulfill the desires of the Spirit within your life. And whichever of those two you're doing indicates the path that you're on. Now, we've concluded that there are two people living within your body. From the time that we started in chapter 6 on the subject of sanctification, we've concluded that there are two people at work within your life if you're a Christian. If you've given your life to Christ and he's moved in and the spirit of Christ has taken up residence within you, there are two active living members at work within you. Number one is you, the flesh. The natural born you. The Bible says, calls it the natural man, the flesh. And also Jesus or the spirit who moved in at the time of salvation. 
Now, what Paul's saying as he talks about minding the things of the flesh or minding the things of the spirit, he's saying that both of those personalities have desires, thoughts, and pursuits. The flesh has desires. The flesh has thoughts. The flesh has pursuits. And it's what the Bible calls, or what the Amplified Bible called, unholy. The unholy desires, thoughts, and pursuits of our flesh. What are they? Well, what does the flesh pursue? What does your flesh, what does my flesh pursue? What does it want? It wants pleasure. It wants to be gratified. The flesh thrives and feeds on self-worth and self-glory. Our flesh wants to be attractive and noticed by people. Our flesh craves amusements and attention and applause and praise. The flesh's anthem is me, me, me. It's the song that the flesh sings. When we see our name, our flesh rejoices because there is no other name under heaven given among men that's so important as mine. That's the anthem and the word that the flesh would say because that's the desire of the flesh is to satisfy itself. But what are the desires and thoughts and pursuits of the spirit within you? If Christ is in you, if Jesus is really living within your heart, then what are the thoughts, desires, and pursuits that he has within you? Well, what are the desires of the Spirit? What gratifies the Holy Spirit? Well, reading the Word of God gratifies the Holy Spirit. You've all tasted that. If you're, if you're sincerely saved in here, then you know what it's like after a long drought of having maybe left your Bible on the shelf. Or several days of not reading his word. And then you decide, you know what, I'm going to just get back in like I'm supposed to. And you read four or five or six psalms. You cruise through First John and you, with your pen and your highlighter, you go through and you mark it up. What's it like when you're finished? There's something inside that just goes, ah. You feel washed. You feel cleansed. You feel gratified. What is that? That's the spirit within you being gratified because you've put your mind on something spiritual. The spirit is gratified when you do spiritual things. Talking with someone about the word. I'll tell you, there is nothing more gratifying spiritually for me than when I have a really good, intimate, biblical conversation with my wife. When we sit down, and, and it doesn't, it's not like our house is like the Bible zone. You know, you walk into our house and you hear like this halo music and, you know, and, and all of a sudden we start floating and we're all spiritual. You know, we have a regular house with kids and messes and all the rest. But when we do, on those rare occasions, have those really good biblical talks where we're hashing out maybe something, you know, that God's doing in our lives or how does this work practically or how does it apply to the kids and our raising of them? And, and we just for maybe a couple of hours just go back and forth scripturally. When it's over, there's something about it. You say, ah, it's gratifying. It satisfies the spirit, the Holy Spirit within us. When you share the Lord with somebody who doesn't yet know him, and you, at first you feel fearful and you don't really know what you're going to say and are, am I going to have the answers for them? But then you begin and you engage in this conversation. And all of a sudden, scriptures are coming out of you that you didn't even know that you knew. And you're answering questions that you had never even really thought through yourself, but somehow the answer is there. And they ask you these things, and then they inquire more, and then they're engaged. And you finish this thing, and whether they accept Christ or not, there's something as you walk away that you go, wow, that is extremely gratifying. And I can see how that could be quite addicting. It's satisfying the desires of the spirit within you when you spend a good time in prayer after perhaps it's been a while and you get back into the closet of intercession 
and you begin seeking the Lord again, talking things over with Him, there's something about it that's so satisfying. It's better than a really good meal. When your service to the Lord, when in your service, the thing that you do for the Lord, when you offer it to Him as worship, when, when what you do, whether it be that you serve tables in the solid ground, or whether you serve the kids in the Sunday school, or whether you serve the congregation with musical talent. But for you, it's an offering of worship that you're taking the gift that God has given to you and you're offering it back to Him as worship. It's extremely gratifying to serve the Lord in that way, to do the thing that God's given you to do and to let the Spirit out as you would serve others, selflessly giving to others. When you spend time being thankful, it's extremely gratifying. See, the thoughts, the desires, the pursuits of the Spirit are the direct opposite of those of the flesh. The flesh only seeks those things that please itself, but the Spirit seeks those things that please God. Now, when you feel empty, when you feel like you need something, and there's something that has to be gratified within you, where do you go? What path do you take when you sense that there's a hunger, something that you need? Do you reach for a cold one? Or do you reach for the word of God? Dig in. Do you seek to gratify the desires of the flesh? Or do you say, no, that's not what I'm really hungering for. There's something that the spirit is seeking and you pursue the desire of the spirit. When you feel bored and, and, and dried up and you need something, do you go to Facebook? Or do you get your face in the book? Reach for the scripture. Spend some time with the Lord. Verse 5 says that they that are after the Spirit do mind the things of the Spirit. Their thoughts, their desires, and their pursuits are unspiritual things. And so to walk in the spiritual path means that your life, at least in some fashion... Now listen, none of us are perfect. I have to stop here and say this. Because until you begin to think, wow, he's really got it all together... You know, sometimes I was saying this to my wife, and we were going back and forth on whether or not I should even say this. But sometimes, you know, the news breaks, and you see, like, this story about a pastor somewhere or a preacher who's caught up in this horrible scandal, right? And, and, and you go, man, how could that happen? That guy, he stood up every week and he preached the Word of God, and the whole time he was living this double life and going, I feel like that preaching this. I really do in some ways because, man, you know, I'm talking about the flesh versus the spirit and gratifying the flesh versus gratifying the spirit. Unless you think, oh, man, and you slump in your seat and you say, oh, I'm a failure. Listen, we're all failures. The question is, is the spirit alive within you? Is there a seat within your heart where the spirit sits and says, I'm gratified by, by spiritual things? And the answer to what you're really craving, what you're really longing for is spiritual things. Do you yield to his desires, thoughts, and pursuits for your life? Verse 6 says, for to be carnally minded is death. That means to walk after the flesh, to mind the things of the flesh. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What happens when you live in constant care and concern only for yourself? You only are thinking about, how, are you, how am I doing how do I look today? Is it a good hair day or a bad hair day? A good haircut or a bad haircut? How do I feel? How am I feeling right now? What do I want to do? What does that group or that person think of me? Why don't I have it better than I do? How can I get more than what I have? Where do I want to go? Where do I want to live? 
What things can I go and get that will satisfy and fulfill the desires that I have? Listen, if you do those things, the Bible says that, that you minding, mind the desires of the flesh, it's death. The result of that kind of life and that kind of self-concern is distress, discouragement, depression, and death. And we all could say amen to that. Because it's when we get our minds on ourselves, when our tension and our focus and our, our love is poured into ourselves, that's where distress and discouragement and depression come from. It's death. It's a deathly way to live. That's what the Bible says. Is that what we're living for? But what happens when you live in pursuit of God's desires for your life? When you want His goals, and you're thinking about that, instead of thinking about what am I doing, how am I doing, you're thinking about what is He doing? What is God doing right now in my life? What is God doing in my neighborhood? What is God doing in my family? What is God doing in my church? How do I look to God? Not how do I look in the mirror. Listen, when you get up in the morning and look in the mirror, you don't look good. (laughs) You, You know, that's our whole problem. We say, yeah, that's what I'm trying to fix. Listen, the question is, how do I look to God? How does God see me today? How does God see things? How does God feel about what's going on at church or what's going on in this situation or what's going on at my job or what's going on with others or what's going on with me? What does God want me to do today? What's on God's mind right now? How can I glorify God today in my life? And how can I do more for him or as unto him? Or to think, what has God done for me? What, rather than what do I need and what do I want? What has he done and what do I have? And Paul says that the result of that is life and peace. That to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You'll have vision, you'll be encouraged, you'll find hope in your heart, you'll be inspired, you'll be enlarged, and you'll bear fruit when you become spiritually minded. Now, how does God feel about this fleshly thing that's living inside me? What's God's opinion towards it? He gives us the answer in verses 7, 8, and 9. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Four things that Paul tells us are God's attitude towards the flesh. How does God view my flesh? Number one, it's his professed enemy. That the carnal man or the carnal mind is enmity against God. That it is his professed enemy enemy. He doesn't get along with it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want to share space with it. There's nothing about our flesh that God looks at and he says, you know, that part of it is pretty good. The whole thing is his enemy, all of it. To the prophet Isaiah, God wrote and he said that your most righteous acts are like filthy rags before me. That the most righteous thing that your flesh produces, God looks at it and he wants to throw up. It's filthy rags before him. The second thing he says about our flesh is that it's an absolute rebellion to him. He says that uh, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. That the flesh is an absolute rebellion. There is no submission in the heart of the flesh towards the things of the Lord. And it cannot. It's It's in rebellion. That's the position of it. The third thing, as he tells us, is that there is no acceptance of the flesh or blessing of the flesh from the hand of God. He says, so then, verse 8, they that are in the flesh cannot 
please God. It is absolutely impossible for you walking in the path of the flesh, minding the things of the flesh to be pleasing unto God. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. And then finally, the fourth thing God says about the flesh is that he will not relate to it. That there is no relationship between God and the flesh. He says at the end of verse 9, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That if you're living your life completely for the flesh, and that there's no pursuit of God, no relationship with God, there's been no salvation experience before God, that your position before God is that you're his enemy, you're in rebellion against him, he does not accept your person, and there is no relationship between you and God. That's the way God looks at the flesh. Listen, when you were called, when you were saved, when you were bought, you were not flattered. God did not look at you and say, wow, I am getting a really good deal when I am purchasing you. It magnifies his grace and goodness. Because when God looks at us, he sees nothing but filthy rags. And yet he was willing to become flesh and take our place upon the cross and die for our sins. So, in light of this, how should we then view ourselves? What should be our assessment and our attitude? What should be our decision, if you would, as it comes to which path I should walk on? Well, in verses 10 through 12, he gives us that answer. How should we view ourselves? He says, if Christ be in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive or life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. Now, did you get all that in the language? Let me pause again. This was an extremely hard study. Not because of the concept, but because of the language. I had a real tough time with the King James in this. For that reason, I also have it in the Amplified Bible for you. Verses 10 through 12. Listen again. How should we view ourselves? But if Christ lives in you, Then although your natural body is dead by reason of sin and guilt, the spirit is alive because of the righteousness that he imputes to you. And if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised up Jesus from the dead will also restore to life your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. What he's saying is this, is that what sin And the flesh do to you before you come to Jesus Christ is that it kills you. That sin in your body, the wages of sin is what? Death. And you were all lost in. Therefore you are dead. That's right. Your sin and your flesh left you dead. That's what you are before God at the point when he saves you. He sees you as a dead man. The flesh was killing you. You were miserable. You were perishing. You were an alien from the life of God. You were without hope. You were destitute of truth. You were lost in your sins. That's your condition when Christ met you. So the body is dead because of sin. And then he goes on to say that the only reason you sit here alive right now and you're sitting in restored health in your natural body is because the Spirit of God moved in and where the Spirit of God is, there is life. So you are alive right now, both spiritually and physically, because of the new birth. If it weren't for Jesus Christ coming and living inside of you, you would be dead to God and you'd be perishing physically. But because the Spirit of God dwells in you, You are alive spiritually, 
And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is life, there is light. And therefore, your health and your body and your mind has been renewed. You have been restored. You have been healed. You have been picked up. And you are not now what you once were, praise the Lord. However, that means you're a debtor. That's what he goes on to say in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh. He says we are in debt to the spirit. Because the privilege of the healing that you've received, the privilege of the renewed mind that you're experiencing, the privilege of the soundness that you have, the stability in your life, has been given to you by Christ and not from you yourself. So should you now take the grace that's been given to you and use it to live a life for the flesh? That's the question that Paul's presenting. And he says, for if you live after the flesh, then you shall die. We are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Since you've been renewed now, don't pursue the things of the flesh. For me personally, what does that mean? About two months before I got saved, I, I was doing something real stupid. I mean, I was 18, so you can excuse me on, th- on that you know, part. But, but I was on top of the library at my college. And uh, don't ask me why I was on top of the library, because I, wasn't, I was sinning on top of the library. You know, we had been smoking something up there, and you know, so we were up on, on top of the library, and, and so I was the last to come down. And in the process of all of the shuffling, the heavens opened and the rain began to fall. And the sheet metal roof that you had to kind of shimmy down to get off the library of the roof became a giant water slide. And so rather than shimmying down, I slid down it, and and then not only down the roof, but then off the roof, and I fell headfirst down into a stairwell and landed right here on concrete. It was about a 15-foot drop after being, you know, accelerated uh, 9.8 meters per second by the, you know. So I, I land on my head, and I, you know, long story short, I spent the next week in the hospital, and in and out of a coma, almost had to do emergency surgery, you know, and it was really kind of very intense experience. And uh, they told me I broke all the bones in this part of my face. I almost lost my eye. I had a blood clot in my brain. I mean, it was very serious. They told me that I'm lucky to be alive. You know, it was one of those kind of things. And I wasn't yet saved. And I was at a point in my life where I was sinning probably more than ever at any time previously. And I was headed down a real dark path. And God would have been perfectly righteous at that time to just blast me off into an eternity apart from him. And, and uh, he, he would have been perfectly just to do so. But he didn't. He spared me. And I spent that week in the hospital. And I saw double. I had double vision for a long time. And I looked like a tie-dye t-shirt for a while. And... You know, it's just, I I was pretty messed up. But God completely restored. And and two or three months after that, I came to Christ. I got saved. And and before that happened, at that time, when when I almost died, I was lonely. I was miserable. I was depressed. I was addicted. I was perverted. I was losing my sanity, literally. I was aimless. And I was absolutely hopeless. And if I had continued on that path, I don't know what my life would look like today. But when I see those people on the side of the street as I drive into the city and they hold the cardboard up and they're begging for money so that they can buy food, you know, and you know what they really are going to do. And I would be one of those people. I'm almost absolutely sure of it. That's the path that I was on. That's where I was heading. I can't imagine where I'd be. But rather, because of what Christ has done in my life and the salvation that I've experienced by the Spirit of God moving in, I'm the opposite of all those things. And on top of that, He has blessed me so abundantly. 
given me so much when I look at my wife and my kids and, you know, what I'm doing right now and all that he's done in my life over these past 12 years, you know, since that time. It's the Spirit of Christ that restored in me what was lost, what was gone, what was dead, what was perishing. Now, in light of that, how wicked would it be for me to now take the things that God has placed in my life because of his blessing and his grace and to use them to walk after the flesh? How wicked would it be for me to take the wisdom that God has given me through his word and apply it to worldly pursuits so that I could benefit myself? How wicked would it be for me to take my stature or position or whatever it is that I have, as foolish as all that is, and to use it in some way to gratify myself or to exalt my own person or character? That would be wicked before God because without what he's done for me, I know where I'd be. And I hope I don't, I forget sometimes. We all forget sometimes. And Paul then says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. You will end up right where you started. You might think, well, now I got it together. Now I can control things a little bit more. No, Paul says you will die. So how then do I live for the Spirit? He answers the question in verse 13. He says, if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Again, in the Amplified Bible, he says, if through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are habitually putting to death, making extinct, deadening, the evil deeds prompted by the body, you shall really and genuinely live. If through the power of the Holy Spirit you are habitually putting to death, making extinct, deadening the evil deeds prompted by the body, you shall really and genuinely live. Now we read back up in verse 7 of chapter 8 that the flesh cannot be subject to the law of God. You cannot, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many promises you make, no matter how many programs you attend, no, how, no matter how much remediation you go through, you cannot make yourself righteous. You cannot make yourself adhere to the law of God and to do what's right on your own. You can't. That's what it says. Just like you cannot crucify yourself. If you were to try to nail yourself to the cross, you would be very frustrated because what you would find is that after you nailed one hand, you wouldn't have the power to nail the other. And so now you'd have a hole in one hand and you would have a hammer in the other and you would fail at your pursuit, only you'd have a hole in your hand. You cannot crucify yourself. It's impossible. Just like you can't change yourself, you can't fix yourself. All you can do, and this is what Paul is telling us to do here, all you can do is yield to the Holy Spirit as the moment dictates, and you let him do the work in you. That's all you can do. Is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are continually and habitually putting to death the desires, thoughts, and intents of this body. This wicked body that we possess. How? You say, how do I do this? What's the practical way? I, I hear the concept, but how do I do this practically? Second Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 3 through 5, Paul gives the most practical word of advice concerning how to do this. How do we yield? How do we give our, ourselves to the spiritual life? He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not fleshly, not hammers and nails, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 
These are our weapons. Verse 5. He says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Pause right there. Look at that. Casting down imaginations or fantasies and bringing every thought into captivity. All it takes for a believer to begin walking again in the path of the flesh is a thought that isn't taken captive, that isn't cast down. I was filling in for another pastor this past Sunday, and I shared the message, and then afterwards we were kind of fellowshipping there in the, the, you know, the fellowship area of the church. And this woman, she came up to me and she said, you know what, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. And she, you know, I, I, I could tell that from, from seeing her in the service that she was saved, she was a believer, you know. I didn't have any issue, but she said, I need to talk to you. She says, I have an issue with God. And I said, okay, you could talk to me from over there because I don't want to get too close to anybody that's got an issue with God. You know, lightning might come or something. You know? No, I said, okay. I, I'll, I mean, all I can do is tell you what the Bible said. And she says, what's the deal with this equally yoked thing? She said, I don't understand why we, we have to be equally yoked. Why we can't, and what she was saying is, why can't I date an unbeliever? Now, she was older. She was not, you know, a a young, you know, like college and career age. She was like on the other side, you know, I would say 40 something, you know, and, and, but she was single. I love all of you 40 somethings. Okay. I am 31. I'm halfway between those two things and it's not my fault. Soon I'll be with you over there on the other side where you are now. Don't get mad at me, you know, but she said, I don't get this equally yoked thing. You know, why is this, why is, and, and I said, oh, well, you know, what, what do you mean? I mean, what's the issue? She said, well, here's the issue. She said, I keep falling in love with people that I work with. She said, they don't even know about it, you know, and, and, I, and I probably would never, you know, be able to act on it. She said, but it's just something that happens. You know, I begin to see myself with them and, you know, and, and, and it would be fun and this whole thing, you know. And, and so, so what's the deal? Why is this so wrong? And I said, listen, here's the issue. Your issue is not with being unequally yoked. That's not the problem because you already know that that won't work out. And she said, yeah, I know. You know, and I, and I said to her, I said, listen, if you get involved with a non-believer, this is what, this is what happens. You guys begin nursing this relationship and there's a carnal attachment, a fleshly excitement and an arousal and and that kind of a thing that happens between you as you begin to relate to each other. But somewhere in the back of your saved mind, you're thinking I'm going to have to get this guy saved. And listen, at the same time, if this guy knows you're a Christian, in the back of his mind, there's a voice saying, I'm going to have to get her away from church. Because he's not going to accept another man in your life. And Jesus, woman, let me tell you something, is the other man in your life to an unsaved guy. And that's not acceptable. I remember that feeling. I broke up with Georgia when she got saved because there was not going to be another man in her life. So that issue is there. It's in the back of his head, but he can't let it out yet because he's nursing this thing along. You're thinking, I've got to get him saved, but I can't let it out yet because I'm nursing this thing along. But as soon as that relationship is sealed, you either get married or you get involved, that becomes the issue. Everything else dies. It goes away. Therefore, it doesn't work. You cannot be unequally yoked. You already know that, don't you? She said, yes, I know that. So so that's not the issue. The issue is, the problem that you're having is that you're failing to take the thoughts captive. You're failing to do what Paul is telling us here, to cast down the imagination. 
Because it's the imagination, it's the uncaught thought, if you would, that leads you down that fleshly path. The most powerful weapon in the Christian's weapons cachet is not an M80 machine gun or a rocket launcher. The most powerful weapon that you have issued to you by the Spirit himself is a net. God has given you the ability to pull down the stronghold of an imagination or a thought that comes into your mind that would seek to steer you off of the narrow path that he has ordained for you. That's all it takes is that one thought. I work in the city. Oh, we're out of time. I work in the city. In the city, I see the most incredible dwelling places you could imagine. I mean, I work on the roof, so I have to go through the penthouses to get on these terraces. And I go in, and we're working on this building right now where, you know, we were there, and this Russian businessman came up with six bodyguards in a briefcase chained to his wrist. And as they showed him this unfinished penthouse that they were doing, they showed him both sides of this upper floor. He looked at them and he said, how much for both sides? And the answer came back, $60,000 a month. And he said, knock down the walls, I'll take the whole floor. And then he walked out of the building. And they set the crew up to go begin knocking down walls. And and I'm sitting there and I'm going, what? $60,000? That's $720,000 a year. He's going to pay in rent to use this floor of this building. That's insane. But then what happens is that thought comes. You know what? Why the heck am I killing myself to try to buy groceries? And then I think, well, what would I have to do to make $60,000 a month? (laughs) And that thought that came in begins to stir around within me. And I think, well, I'd have to probably get a little bit more education because I know nothing about investments. And investments, you need something that's going to carry you and you start going to this thing. And all of a sudden, I went from having a wife and three kids and a simple job in a Bible teaching ministry to being this businessman on the world spectrum that has a place in Manhattan, a place in L.A., a private jet that goes to Singapore three times a month, you know, and all this stuff. And meanwhile, God's there. He's knocking on my heart and going, hey, Nick, remember Georgia and the kids up in Poughkeepsie? Oh, yeah, Lord. Well, they want groceries. So get back to work. (laughs) Do you see what happens? Is it just a thought? A thought comes into the mind. and, And it gets you on that fleshly path of pursuing something other than what God has intended for your life. Now what the Bible promises is that God's plans for you are for peace and not for evil. That he wants to give you a future and a hope. That he has something in mind that he's doing and that his ultimate intentions for you are good. The Bible says that he will withhold no good thing from those that love him. That's God's will and God's plan, God's desire for your life. But you can be sidetracked. You can begin following after the things of the flesh because you can't understand in your natural mind how God's going to work all those things out. And so that thought comes. And you find yourself twisted. You find yourself going off the, the, the straight and narrow A thought gives birth to an action, an action gives birth to a habit, and a habit gives birth to a lifestyle. But if, through the Spirit, you take those thoughts captive, you mortify the deeds of the body, those things that are trying to drag you away from the things of the Lord, then little by little the flesh will wax weaker and weaker, and this person of the Spirit will become more and more prominent in your life, and you will start to experience what the Bible calls life and peace. 
You'll experience life in its truest and fullest expression in the thing that God has for you. And when you find that you're seeking after the things of God, not only do you experience that life and peace on a daily basis, but you find the truth of Romans 8.1, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, seeking the things of God in your life. My challenge to you tonight is as you go through your day tomorrow and work your way towards the weekend, that when those things come up in your mind, the temptation to gratify the desires of the flesh, that you would catch it in that net that God has issued to you, that you would pull down that stronghold and you would say, what am I really hungry for right now? What is it that I'm really seeking after? What does God want? What does Christ in me want right now that's causing me to feel this ungratified feeling? And rather than yielding to the desires and lusts of the body, that you would yield yourself rather to the lusts and desires of the spirit within you that you would be a true christian and that you'd experience the life and peace that the bible gives to those that walk after the spirit father we thank you tonight for this great word and we ask lord that you would apply it to our lives in a practical way that lord truly as we go from this place our perspective would be changed our attitude would be adjusted Lord, we can't do it on our own but we ask lord that through the spirit you would help us to mortify the deeds of this body that we would experience the fullness of life that you offer and promise to those that call upon you. And Lord, if there's anybody here tonight that doesn't know you personally, that only knows that path of seeking to fulfill and gratify the deeds of the flesh, Lord, they've tried so many times to reform their behavior and change their activities, but they find no power and no ability to do it. I pray that tonight, Lord, as this word sinks into their heart, that they would realize the truth of it, that in you there's salvation and freedom, forgiveness and life. And Lord, that they would turn to you. I pray to work in the heart of that person right now. Lord, that you might even move them to make that decision to call upon you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, Lord, that they would be truly saved. And so we ask these things, Lord, that you would continue to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.